Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Hain, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hi, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is October 31st, Halloween. We are hiding from the children in this bunker that is the recording studio. Um, We've got a great episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking about, uh, well, we're going to be talking about the election and what that means for book publishing and what that means for writing and kind of the basis of book publishing and what we're going to call a think piece culture. Um, And then to end, we've got a lovely surprise for you, of course, because we have to settle our man booker bet, don't we? God. (laughs) Um, As some people, I'm sure, saw, uh, the man booker was decided. It went to Paul Beatty for his novel, The the Sellout, right? The Sellout. You're the one that guessed it. (laughs) I was the one who picked it. Uh, um, I was the one who picked it correctly. Um, And you you went with Eileen by Otessa Mosfe, and we're incorrect. And I was very wrong. (laughs) But, so, oh, Laura has the gong, by the way, today, so that'll be, I'm sure, a plot that won't ruin anything at all. Um, <laughs> but, so we've got, we've got Laura reading aloud from her favorite novel of all time. She was granted the privilege to read aloud from Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections at the end of this episode. Are you excited, Laura? I am just jumping with joy. <laughs> It's going to be really good. Um, I picked a really, really good scene for her to read from that I am very excited for. Um, but yeah, so Laura, tell me about your week. How you been? I am pretty good. There's been some interesting news on the Rialto though, Eric. <laughs> if you don't Do know, tell. that was a Shakespeare joke. Well, I did not know and I feel very dumb for not knowing. But well, I'm you pre- and the rest of the listeners can laugh at my expense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Oh, well, I'm really excited because Shakespeare was just demoted to co-author in three of his plays. Oh. Which makes me feel better because we've demoted ourselves to co-hosts on this <laughs> on this show. Not even the boss of my own show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so we're we're there with Shakespeare as co So wait, why did he why did he get demoted? Okay, so um Christopher Marlowe is the is like the lesser Jacobian playwright. Okay. Uh he's been hanging around forever. He's the one that people are always talking about, like maybe wrote with Shakespeare. Um, and there has been new, um, there's been new information, yeah. I guess, not really new information, new scholarship, right, essentially, right. that has caused Oxford University Press. Shout out. Shout out. That's where homies. Eric used to work. So they're <laughs> going to be the first major publisher who is going to officially credit Shakespeare or officially credit Marlowe, I guess I should say, um, as a co-author of uh, Henry VI. And part two also in part one um, and then part three. So that's like a lot of Henry. So so basically like Christopher Marlowe helped, according to some, uh, Shakespeare write some plays that people read in college and then completely forget thereafter. Damn. So. Well, yeah, that's going to be weird. Like, I mean, are they going to have to like republish a bunch of bunch of books now with like the double? I mean, you said Oxford's doing it. Well, they're doing um, it in their new edition, so they're like crediting him in the new edition. But like some actually, other people this is are... going to be a great cash grab for a lot of publishers who now have an excuse to reprint Shakespeare. They're going to be able to like stick a new author on it and be like it's the new edition to honor the new scholarship, and everyone's going to have to go buy it again, and all the schools are going to have to go buy it again. Uh, this is good. This is what publishing thrives on: is uh, petty changes in information that of then mean books we can, that are four hundred and fifty yeah, yeah, years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that then mean we can reprint everything and um, resell it to all the people who already own an original copy. Yep. Except none of them who get it are going to reread the Henrys because, like, 
people don't reread the Henrys. Not I hope, really. <laughs> I hope it becomes like a major like status symbol. Like you, you like go over to someone's house, you know, maybe after like a party night, you know, you're you found someone at the bar, you go back to their apartment and you look at their bookshelf and it's like, oh, oh, you don't have one of the co-authored editions <laughs> and you grab your things and you leave because he's certainly not cultured enough for you. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Although like Marlo is by far a subpar. Oh, sub- shots playwright. fired. According, I mean, like, like when you can, when you compare, like not that great. Not that great. <laughs> you acted there like you were bolstering your point, but really all you said was, well, when you actually just look at it. Well, when you actually do just look at it, it's not as good. Yeah, all right. Like, Fair not, not no, that great. Not, but you're anyway. Not any argument from me. Anyway, Shakespeare is now a co. Now we don't have to, you know, like now, oh my God, Eric, does this mean that I need to have the Shakespeare tattoos I have redone to oh, also include Marlo? Oh, Milo? it absolutely means that. I didn't even realize you had Shakespeare tattoos, I have to be two. honest. But, um, yeah, you're going to have to get in there. You're going to have to go back. You're going to have to have them redact the original. <laughs> just cross it, it out. Yeah, you're basically going to have to reprint um, you know, honor the new scholarship. It's it's going to be painful, but honestly, it's better for everyone. It's the same thing as publishing the book. The tattoo parlor gets paid twice. The book publisher is going to get paid twice. It's just good for the economy, I which hope- we're going to be talking about later. <laughs> I hope when you get there um, at the tattoo parlor, there's like a whole line of people like you. <laughs> <laughs> who have Shakespeare Just, tattoos? And we need, need to this get crossed yeah, out. Man. Who are like super serious about it? They're like, yeah. I mean, I saw the news. I mean, we're all here. This is how it has to be. It's like people who had like solar system tattoos had to get like Pluto crossed <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah. You got to get like sadly removed. No, no, it's a mole. You can like pretend that Pluto is like part of your skin. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's good. I mean, at least Marla's being added, like not subtracted, because I hear that getting tattoos removed are much more uncomfortable. Yeah, actually, I yeah. bet the ad. With, will be very funny. You can like stick it on the end or something. Plus Marlo yes. in like chicken scratch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. An asterisk. You can put an asterisk <laughs> at the top of the image and then like a little footnote at the bottom. It'll be great. Well, I mean, footnotes Footnotes are what, you know, modern Shakespeare scholarship thrives on. So it's it's really like yeah. part of what I should be doing. It's like not, it's not body art. It's body scholarship, you know. TM. Like you, yeah. <laughs> you need like a citation on your you know, <laughs> properly Chicago needs, manual style format. It needs citations. to be peer yeah. reviewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. Okay. So one other thing uh-huh. that's exciting besides me apparently um, yep. going to the tattoo parlor yep. is that this Thursday, yes. November 3rd. Yes, yes, so that's, yes. you know, three days from when we're recording this, two days from when you're going to be listening to this, ideally. Uh, we will be having our very first query show. Uh-huh. So what that is, if you haven't been listening to previous episodes, viewers like you, except you're not viewers, you're listeners. Listeners like you. Nice. PBS. Nice correction. Thanks, PBS. <laughs> uh, have sent your query letters to us. And the response has been good. We've gotten a lot of good oh, ones. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've, got, we've got enough for one a show, few, yeah. I think. Yeah. But you never know. So yeah. we'd like to see more because we'd like to pick at random and mm-hmm. have a nice spread. Um, but so they have submitted queries to us. And it's okay that they're outside of our genre or not in, outside of our genre. Yeah, no, it doesn't really show. matter. Yeah. So we're going to be going through and workshopping these queries line by line, anonymously, of course, mm-hmm. over the air to you. So if you submitted a query, listen, because yours might be critiqued by two agents um, if you are writing your query or are currently querying, you should listen because you'll get some good tips. 
so that's this Thursday. So if you want to get your query in before then, send it in. Yep. Please also note that uh, we have another bonus show on November 17th, which is also a Thursday. Uh, that'll be for our first pages. So that'll be the first page of your manuscript. So yep. if you want to send that in as well, we're going to be going through that and kind of basically touching on what causes an agent to keep reading or to stop reading right at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we've kind of hammered this point home in the first few episodes, but we want to make sure that it's clear. Um, we want these extra Thursday episodes that are going to be happening twice a month to really be focused on writing and craft for people who are trying to improve their work, who are trying to improve their queries, um, who are trying to find representation or a publisher or things like that. Um, we want to make sure that we're taking time to talk directly to those people because we know a lot of you are those people. Absolutely. And so please also note that the November shows, both of the November shows are free. Mm-hmm. All the November or all of the shows after November are going to be specifically for our Patreon donors. Yep. Um, Patreon, if you don't know, is a website that supports artists monthly for the content that they create. Um, and we are doing this as a way to cover our hosting and also cover our equipment so that we can have fun things like guests. Yeah. So if you, and you know, like my tattoo removal, <laughs> yeah, we have to, <laughs> it's now, it is now a business expense. Cause how can we, how could anyone in the literary community take Laura seriously without a perfectly co-authored tattoo? Right. Okay. Yeah. So I don't take her seriously now. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, so, so we're doing that to really just cover our expenses. And so we, if you, if you give $5 a month, you get access to the query show $10 a month, you get access to the query and the first pages show. Um, if you've ever been to a writing conference or you've done anything kind of in person where you're pitching agents, you'll know that that is a lot cheaper than going to a writing conference. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Or pitching somebody. Um, so if you're interested, then please visit our page at Print Run Podcast, which is on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, like patron with an E, because it's online. Uber for liberal arts kids. Uber for liberal arts kids. Um, yeah, so we would really appreciate it. And we're really hoping that you turn into our career show, because I'm going to have a lot of fun. And hopefully, Eric and I will find some requests. Yeah, that'd be fun to find some actual books we want to read through absolutely the show. um i guess the last thing before we dive into our main topic today is just a brief reminder based on our conversation last week um that if you are listening and you've enjoyed the first i guess this is episode five now huh oh yeah um if you've enjoyed the first five episodes and you're listening on itunes uh go in and rate us give us a review um you know when we're rate us however you want but uh reviews are a great way for us to get known in their algorithms for us to start appearing on some of their lists um, it's a really easy way to support the show. It takes 30 seconds, and it helps us chase down the New York Times book review, which is now, of course, the main goal of the show, to leapfrog the the snoots out in New York. I'm getting edited tattoos. Eric wants to beat the New York Times. <laughs> we have achievable goals, Yeah, folks. yeah, we can do it. We can do it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so if, if, you, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, um, go give us a review. We'd really appreciate it, and it would help us out a lot. Thanks very much. Um, so let's get to the issue at hand. And Which is, is the election. Yeah, yeah, that needs, you know, hit it louder so that I die. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's funny because it's true. The issue at hand is 
so it's it's we're not going to talk about the election. We're not going to talk. This is not just before you turn this off. This is not a politics show. This is not a politics episode. This has nothing to do with that. What we want to talk about is something I think we both foresee happening, and something that is very easy. You know, it's not a hard prediction to make, but the idea that after this election season is over, a season in which we can all, I think, fairly describe as pretty extraordinary. And tiring. Yeah, well, sure. But it's a very notable, it's been a very notable year in a lot of ways. Um, It's going to spawn a lot of books, basically. And the question is that I have thinking about that, knowing that these books are coming, you know, six months from now, a year from now, whenever it is that we get the 2016 election books, are they going to matter? That's my question. Because, you know, kind of framing this as the debate I want to have is I know that I am not at all rare amongst people like us who have read countless, countless, countless pieces on the election this year. They've been reading think pieces. They've been reading forecasts. They've been reading recaps. They've been reading essays. They've been reading literally everything there is, every ounce of content. Tweets, Facebook posts, newspaper articles. Just think for a second. Think for a second the number of written words you've read related to the election this year. It's enormous. I mean, it's it's crazy to think about. I could have probably and, done my job a lot better if I was reading, like, <laughs> submissions yeah, instead yes, of... <laughs> exactly. Me too, if I wasn't stressed out reading this thing. But, like, my question to you is then, Laura, are we going to be tired of this? Is anyone going to want to read these books? Is I mean, and more importantly, maybe... In this age when it's so easy to get a story out so fast, when it's so easy to get facts to us so immediately, when people are so good now, reporters and journalists and essayists are so good at writing about things that are happening quickly or over a week, um, do we need a book for this? Do you feel like you – how about this? Let's start here. Do you feel like you need a book on the 2016 election? Um, Me right now? No. Me in 10 years, probably. Yeah? Yes. So I think so. Why? Because I, I think for now, and I'm not saying that I totally disagree, but I know that, like, I don't want to, I don't know that I'm going to want to spend $29.95 on a book because I've been reading essay after essay after essay after essay that take short views, that take long views, that do all these things. And it just feels like, so I think you said something really interesting there. Yeah. That you don't want to spend twenty nine ninety five on a book. Yeah. For this for election. This, for something I read about constantly. And anyway. for something that you lived yeah. through. Yeah. Well exactly. and, and here's here's I think what what I think our our instincts are getting at when we're thinking that we're not gonna want books. You know, it goes beyond being tired of the election. It goes beyond you know, being very set in your ways and and demonizing the other party. Um, I think the simple fact of the matter is, is that with the glut of the 24-hour news cycle and the fact that this election has been happening for two fucking years, (laughs) I think we've gotten really used to having content that is monetized but not monetized towards us. So, you know, like a think piece, like you read a think piece online, You know, like if you get the New York Times or the Washington Post, like you pay for it up front and then it just shows up. Yeah. So you're not immediately considering that you're hashing money to to read something about what you're living through. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like 
books in some ways are are considered a product in a way that a lot of other journalism and 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 thought isn't well, like so thought I, that's I written agree down. With, I agree with that. The question is, do you want the product? Well, when I'm getting the essence of the product all these other times. So here's so here's the 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 pros and the cons of of having it be a product. Mm-hmm. The pro is that it it kind of inherently tells us about a a value, like an intrinsic value of this product that, you know, like a thing piece by Joe Joe Schmo on HuffPo doesn't have. Um, you know, if 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 a book is in the bookstore and it's got, you know, the cover and all that jazz and it costs, you know, 25 bucks or whatever. There's, there's a, there's a sense that, that the person that wrote it is real and that they've been vetted and that they've done their work and that what you're reading is not nearly as opinionated necessary, even though it might absolutely be not necessarily opinionated as, you know, the think piece that maybe you're reading. Um, the con of that also is that it's beholden to the the economics of art in a way that think pieces aren't necessarily. You know, think pieces very much are okay. about page clicks and all that yeah. jazz. Yeah. But but you know, I looked just really quickly, and I'm really like, can we have a moment of silence for my Amazon search history here, please? <laughs> um, but I looked really really carefully at. The two election books yeah. by the two major party candidates, um, Hillary's book, which is Stronger Together, and Trump's book, which is Crippled America. Right. Um, both of those, they're, funnily enough, they're put out by the same publisher. Okay, so yeah, I'm going to stop, stop you there, me there because I find that point really interesting, and it also gets to something I think you said a second ago, which is about uh, which is about bias. Mm-hmm. I am someone who doesn't think that bias is such a bad thing when okay. it comes to my coverage, when it comes to my books, when it comes to anything, because I think that bias exists everywhere. I don't think any like I think when people are like, oh, I want my news bias free. I want this whatever bias free. I don't necessarily buy it. You're always going to get bias. Well, sure. And it's I'd rather, you know, when you have someone who's a writer, I'd rather have someone who doesn't try to hide from his or her own bias, but rather tries to engage with it and provide, you know, understand where he or she is coming from and then also try to push against it a little bit and be honest that it's there as opposed to these, like, you know, what you're talking about, these HuffPo accounts or whatever that just kind of try to be as bland as possible in the name of this kind of false objectivity that I don't think is real at all. And so when you tell me, like... Simon and Schuster is the publisher, right? Yep, Simon and Schuster. Books. Yeah. Well, Simon and Schuster, the main imprint, does uh-huh. Hillary's, and then Trump's is a special imprint called Threshold Editions, which my favorite part of it's a specifically conservative. I was about to ask. Well, I want to yep, know. It's about a split. That. It's a specifically conservative imprint. It's been around yeah. for ten years. Yeah. Their uh, their their um, like line that they yeah. go by now. Yeah. It's it, oh, it's my favorite part about this entire imprint. It's um. It's a very curated imprint, but their their like tagline is celebrating ten years of being right. <laughs> that is funny. I know, um, isn't that okay. funny? Okay, so okay. so with that, I was gonna ask if they were separate imprints because one thing I was gonna try they to make are. a point about is with a lot of these, you know, think pieces that come from places like rolling, you know, I'm just for me, a lot of the places I've been reading to get coverage, and you can glean what you will about my, you know, 
the media I've consumed. Um, but from MTV News, from the Washington Post, from the New Yorker, from the Rolling Stone, places like that, where this feels a lot, those places feel a lot different than kind of the bland reactionary recap that I think that you kind of held up as kind of in opposition to a book a minute ago when you said it's either a book or it's this kind of bland article that doesn't really have any research or depth to it. Well, and, that's, that's not what I meant. And, sure. Um, but it's like these are pieces that have taken the long view. You know, I've, I, for instance, how about this? There's this piece that came out this week that everyone is talking about right now. It's about a, by a journalist named David Fahrenhold. Um, and he basically wrote this giant expose about Trump's charitable giving mm-hmm. and how basically he hasn't done any of it that he said he's doing based on all this research, based on this basically this year of looking into every last line of frame, of um, claimed giving that Trump has had. He's kind of gone through all of it. He's taken almost a year to do this research, all this stuff, and he ended up producing this article. And it's a great article. It is a great article. But, I read it. But I didn't need it. I didn't want it. I didn't have to. I could skim it. You know why? Because I already knew all of it. Because as he was writing it, we're all, you know, there's nothing he told me in this piece that I did. He was late to the ball because it took too long. Because his piece and the research required was too the essence of what he was trying to say was out there already. Like I didn't need, by the time that he published this piece, I already knew all the things that he's telling me. Do you know what I mean? It's when you take, so I guess my point is this, when it comes, especially for the books we're going to see that come out in the near aftermath here, like the, the ones that are soon, like the mm-hmm. next six months, they're going to take a view that it's gonna, they're going to present themselves as these comprehensive things that are going to reveal all this stuff. And my fear for book publishing is that it's, they're not actually going to reveal anything new. That, you know, between, um, between all the various ways we have of consuming information now, between columns and between tweets, you know, that was the other thing. This, this Fahrenheit guy, who's a great writer, I mean, this is nothing against him. I think he's really good, but... He, as he was writing and doing research, he was kind of throwing out all these tidbits on the internet, right? And they were fascinating. He's like, hey, look what I just found out. And he kind of tweets it out. And it's like, by the time we get to the article, you've already painted me the picture. And by the time or we get to any of these books, I'm already going to know all the things you're going to have supposedly been researching. It's like when something happens, people – there's like two things that happen, I feel like, with a lot of these thing pieces. And I think that books even are going to be more susceptible to this. There's the recaps, right? There's the quick ones. The, you know, the debate happens, and every single site throws up their debate recap, which is all the same, right? Which is all, which is largely the same. You know, there's all, you know, there's a few writers I really look to and like to talk to about to talk, talk to me about that. And then there's the people who wait, who take that debate and want to put it with all the other debates and put it with all the other things and talk about all this other stuff. And by the time they publish their piece, which is being presented as kind of this longer feature, you know, this thing, it's like I've already read five pieces about each individual part of what your longer thing is, and I'm tired of it. And it has nothing to do with the quality of writing. These people write beautiful essays. These people write beautiful pieces. It's that I can't – there's a fatigue that sets in. There is a tiring, and I, I worry about that. I think that we're going to get a lot of these books that unless they're really well thought out, and I, there will be some. I want to make that clear. And I'll, to be honest, I'll probably buy some because 
I'm one of those people that you're a glutton for punishment. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. Um, but it won't be because I'm looking for new information. But but here's here's I think one thing that we've come to equate in this modern like social media laden like 24 hour news cycle society. Sure. We've come to equate newness with with like truth and and accuracy and importance. Yeah. So Yeah. Here's here's kind of my my counterpoint to that. Mm-hmm. Yes, right now you're fatigued about it. And yes, the picture's already been painted. But especially with this election, you know, tensions are running really high. It's, you know, it's painful for everybody. Everybody is, you know, marveling at the other side, just kind of blatantly ignoring vac- what they see as facts. Um, and there's one thing that a think piece can have that's that that a book or that a longer piece the one that the one that comes late as you say late to the party doesn't have and that's um that kind of like personal quick like gut reaction take that allows it to be absolutely thrown out to say that person's you know doesn't have any doesn't have as much proof or but this one thing can you're be saying, explained away you're saying the immediacy can can work against it the yeah. fact that it comes out so fast thus makes it more dismissible or, or just you know this this piece by this guy who spent a year finding evidence i mean it's a it's, great piece it's but, really interesting but if you've been following him on social media you already knew all the stuff that he told you right and, but I mean, to be fair, the article is going to reach a lot more people than who follow him on yeah. social media and yeah. different people. And that piece can't be same as the books. You know, they've got the space to have the the context. It's got the space to have all of the evidence. It's got the space to cover a wider scope. And I feel like, you know, right now we have fatigue, but I think it's also really valuable to look at the written word, especially in an election like this. And how it's going to stick around long term, you so know, because people aren't people aren't just like voting and then being done. Like we're going to sure. have to deal with this to four to, four yeah, to but, eight more years. Sure. But I think that. I feel like the whether or not we're done with it is not what's going to dictate whether or not we want books on it. I feel like that sort of thinking where, um, you know, the book market comes down to whether or not the election is quote-unquote still going on and i think you know most people would say for all intents and purposes it is going to keep you know all these things we're talking about or we're going to keep talking about after november 8th um i don't know if that's going to be what drives the book market and so my question to you is you know what's your angle like why what kind of book do you want because i don't want like a just a recounting of what happened like it's going to have to be something deeper it's going to have to be a look i hadn't considered yet it's going to have to be someone who tells me a story and this is true of of all books obviously but like it's going to have to be someone who tells me a story that i didn't know i needed it'll have to be something that isn't like a product that's immediately lauded or dismissed based on the reader's political leanings one thing that i found of note this this afternoon when I was looking mm-hmm. online at, you know, Hillary, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's books is that um, 
all of the reviews were entirely made up of either really, really strong supporters right. or really, really strong. Well, those are campaign books. Yeah. I mean, these are the ones by the candidates. Right. Like, that's who's but, reading but I think, books. But I think that that's something still that's really valuable. You know, yeah. um, you know, there's something to be said that, you know, the Republicans clearly have the whole Amazon review system down on lock and the Dems are kind of far behind. Is that, is that what you gleaned? I mean, Absolutely. The, I suppose the, <laughs> the, we've seen and we won't we obviously we're not diving into it, but we've seen the Trump fans are pretty good at the Internet. They're very good at the <laughs> Internet. There's they are very good at the Internet um, um, and they're very good at using reviews. Um yeah. So if you're a Democrat, prove them wrong and give us five stars on iTunes. Um, <laughs> and if you're a Republican, also joke, do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I it, it I, I want a book that isn't just about the people, I guess, is what I'm what I'm getting down to, because that that becomes, you know, it's not just about the candidates. It's not just about the policy policies, because that that hits people really close to home. You know, it hits it hits them. And the deepest core of how they identify in American society. Yeah. And I want, I guess, the book, the book to me that's gonna be relevant, the book that the book that's gonna be needed now and then also in ten years, which I think, you know, most of these books is are gonna be valuable in ten years. But, you know, are are books like the the recent the recent one that came out, um, that I have an arc of upstairs. It's called Broad Influence. And it's all about how women are shaping American politics and how uh-huh. that's changing. Like something something like that. Where something where it takes historical context and it takes individuals and it takes kind of a bipartisan look. But also isn't necessarily unbiased. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kind I don't of, care about bipartisan looks. Um, that's maybe a difference between what you and I are talking about. And you're, um, you mentioned that you're going to want a book that doesn't want the bias, that doesn't want the... Bias is um, fine, but I want it to be holistic. I want it to be looked at from yeah. all angles, and yeah, then yeah, I yeah. want to be convinced no, why I'm right or wrong. That's, I think that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, it's, But I, I guess when I hear people start to talk about unbiased, all this stuff, it's like all I can ever think of is that's going to be so bland because you're going to try to do all this hedging. You're going to try to do all this stuff that isn't just telling me what you think. And the best thing I think a writer can do is tell me what you think and show me what you think. And it's, I don't know, I feel like we're going to get a lot of, this is my fear, and this is kind of why I wanted to talk about this, is I feel like we're going to get a lot of really reactionary books when this election is over. You're going to see it. Every big five house is going to pump out some election account that's just going to be some, everyone's going to find whoever you know whatever reporter they can get their hands on who's willing to write the book who was on the beat for the last 16 months who is just going to kind of retell all the things that happened to them and those will be fine and but they won't be essential and they won't matter people you know some people will buy them but like i don't want that book and i don't think that book is particularly useful and i kind of think that kind of reactionary book publishing is what a lot of it kind of points at a lot of problems book publishing has anyway well, I'd like and, to take a moment to talk about what that kind of reactionary publishing entails, because um, if you don't know, to, to put a book into production and to write a book, like that takes at least 18 months. Um, well, hold on. Hold we're going to be. On. Let's clarify that. Well, I, so what do you mean by 18 months? Because I don't know if that's true. Well, typically, you know, from the 
you know, from the time that a book is drafted to when it comes out, you know, if the deal happens right away and all that jazz, it probably takes about a year to 18 months. Draft. So we're talking, um, I don't mean to get in the nuts and bolts here. We're talking like someone signs a nonfiction book deal and the book hasn't been written yet. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, but I'm talking about how this is different. So I want to, yeah, I want, okay, yeah, no, I, I would continue. like, no, it's yeah, 18 so, months sounded really long. Yeah, so well, continue. It, it, welcome to publishing. Well, yeah, but um, it doesn't, I, it often isn't, I feel like it often isn't that long, but, um, which I think is going to be something we see here, but right. Your, so, yeah. so that's, that's kind of what I'm saying that, that reactionary publishing, you know, how many people are out there with books already drafted except for the last chapter? Yes, you know, lots of and them, they, and that's my exactly my point. You're exactly yep, right. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Talk to me about what the problem is about that, and what it does for the process, and what it does for the product. I don't want that book because that book is no better. That the reason I want to buy a book on something, on any topic, mm-hmm. is because it's able to take a longer and more thorough and more, I don't know, deeper view. Of whatever it is we're taught, whatever it is the book is on. So if you're telling me, and I agree that this is happening, this is kind of my point as well, and kind of my big worry about all this worry is strong, but my big it's a worry. <laughs> it's a worry. <laughs> um, it's that it's exactly what you're saying is that everybody right now has the book. Some of them even have deals right yeah. now. They're just waiting for everybody, November eighth to happen. Everybody has the book, and they're all they're all eighty percent done, right? And they're all waiting to write the end. And my point is that if you're going to publish this book in early 2017 or late this year even, you know, because you can crack. I mean, so in terms of schedule, you can crack. If you have the manuscript done and you know you've got the fervor around this election and all this stuff, um, you you can crank one of these out in a few months. You can crash one of these books, have it ready for early 2017. I mean, it, it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, it would be kind of a pain in the butt, but you could do it. And what I fear is that if you're just going to write the last chapter after November 8th and send it in, what you're giving me is no better than any of the think pieces I've been reading. It's not any deeper because you've already you've been writing it under the same time frame. You've just written a lot of the pieces. What I want, this is the book that I want, right? Okay, tell me. And I want a book that takes a few years. First of all, I want a book that is not going to come out anytime before, oh, 2019, arbitrarily you know i want a book that takes a few so like right in the middle of the next election cycle (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) no but i want a book i I mean actually what you just said there is probably a really great time to publish books on this cycle because everyone's kind of rethinking about you know everyone's kind of getting back into this shit again you know (sighs) but anyway um, i can't already talking about about that that. i can't think about that we're not doing that um but i want a book that takes a couple years and actually thinks and spends some time and lets the dust settle and actually takes a look at what the hell just happened because a lot has happened. And I don't trust anybody who thinks that they can churn something out that fast this turnaround. Like I don't think you have anything that's worth my 29 bucks. Mm. And I want to – like I guess for me the book that I'm hoping somebody writes is a really, really personal account of just the frustration by the people. The frustration of the – Anyone who is offended by Trump, the frustration of the white working class as they kind of feel forgotten by both parties and how they were able to be swept up by this right wing populist movement, you know, all this stuff. I want to hear about everybody because we all just we all just hated this. Right. I want to hear a story about that. I want to hear a story about the people and how everybody just got so disenchanted with all of this 
and what that means for politics moving forward, what it means for, I don't know. When we all have to come together and realize that we're still yeah. living in the same communities with the same people. And yeah, and it's just, I guess I just, I just mean like, but the point there that I think is worth getting across is not my personal tastes, but the idea of a long view and a deeper view about one particular aspect and not just some like timeline. I don't want what happened in the election. I don't want to read the timeline. I don't want to read the timeline. I lived the timeline. Please don't write me the timeline. Give me some bit. Take me, give me some angle I haven't thought of. So what I'm hearing is that our collective thesis in, in, think peace culture and living through this hellscape of an election <laughs> is that books are valuable because they can take that long deep view but only when yeah. they're done correctly and when they're done thoughtfully and when they're not reactionary you got to have something in there that i can't get in an essay that i can find online you know like i can go if i have some biographical figure that I want to look at. You know, I'm sure I could find a good essay on them online if I did a little Googling. But what are you going to tell me in a book that's going to make me, yeah, I want to pick up this big, stupid, print, hardcover book, pay, you know, 30 bucks for it, and read it and feel that I got my money's worth. Like, with adult nonfiction like this, it has to have something that really is worth the money. And I feel like that is not what's going to happen in these first few months. There's going to be these exploitative reactionary book deals that happen in the wake of everything that ever happens in the world, great and small. It's like, oh, man, this happened. We better get a bunch of books on this, and everyone signs, and then it's, you know, by the time the book actually comes out, no one cares because it was kind of a stupid reactionary project anyway. So what we want are books that talk about our experiences in terms of history, not in not through like the current event news cycle lens. Yes. I, so I we don't want, want history any... books, not current event books. I think so. And I want and maybe but I also think that there's a there's a certain quality of recent history that's different than history. You know, like I think if someone were to when you take like a history lens and put it on. 2016 you know 2014 through 2016 like that kind of stuff i think that it takes kind of a different quality it suddenly becomes um i don't know it takes it takes on this kind of deeper longer view that isn't what we're saying well that isn't newsy but also isn't this kind of dry detached history it's something in between it's something in between and it's something that matters and that in between is going to have to be what happens and i i think i have full faith that we're going to see it you know someone's going to write that book and i'm going to happily buy it i know that i'm going to but there's going to for every one of those there's going to be six or seven books that i just don't need well i hope so i'm looking at you book world to make that happen and if you are planning on writing that book you should send it to eric oh, send it to me Come um on. let's talk <laughs> we'll figure uh, it out for the next few years but i'm not publishing it in 2017 i mean i feel better i feel better about that than i feel about the election so i guess that's yeah, a good sign that's a good it's a good place to um, end the convo. And, you know, but while I'm feeling utterly dejected about the state of the world, <laughs> let's read some Jonathan Franzen. Yes. So we give me, have... Give me some background yeah. about this book. Okay. So um, just again, <laughs> um, quick recap here on what we're doing. Um, 
a few weeks ago, the, our very first episode, I think it was. It was our first episode. Um, Laura and I had a man booker prediction show where we sat down, we looked at the short list, we, you know, picked apart who the candidates were, what their books were, and who was going to win. Eric was 100% sure that he was going to win, and he was Go right. Listen. I was dead certain. And I'm never going to forgive him. I will never forgive this man. And yeah, and so we both took a bet. And the loser was going to have to read a book uh, or a passage from the book of the other person's choice on the air. And so narrowly, I dodged a dramatic reading of Fifty Shades of Grey, which, you know what, you guys might get some other time. Like, you know, I was kind of getting ready to sauce it up we'll, here. <laughs> yeah, we'll maybe do that in like a clip on an, in and of itself, like, an, like a not to, safe for work yeah, clip. She'll, she'll have to... She'll have to beat me in some other bet. We'll see if it happens. I'd also have um, to like buy Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do it for you, print runners. I um, do it for you. <laughs> um, but so Laura was going to have to read, obviously, the stuffiest, most white male establishment piece of adult literary fiction I could find. And that, of course, is my beloved The Corrections. Um, it's not my beloved. That's actually the opposite of that. It's a... That was a Toni Morrison joke. Um, but um, <laughs> the, the book we're reading here today is The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. I have picked a lovely passage um, that I think I was tweeting about earlier. Possesses the most um, depressed, Midwest, you know, repressed sexuality that we could possibly find. Um, because that's that's why you come to Franzen. And that's why, really, you come to adult literary fiction is for all the people who can't quite have the sex they're hoping to. Are you ready? Yep. All right. I okay. I'm looking at this totally blind. <laughs> I have literally never this read a, a word. This is the first words. She didn't even read the piece where he said that all of our children should be replaced by penguins. And no, I tried because to you say, told me about it. <laughs> yeah, because I was try. I was figuring I, out how I was going to adopt a penguin. So I've never. Do you think they'll have penguins at the bird show? Oh God! Yeah, we're going to a bird show. Well, now, Print. now my laundry's in the streets, isn't it? Uh. <laughs> I'm reading Jonathan Franzen. You can deal. Um, yeah. So I've never read a single word of uh, Jonathan Franzen's fiction. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of shitty things he's said in interviews, and you know about like the time that he, like Oprah, got really mad at him because of something shitty he said. Uh, so all I know about Jonathan Franzen is that I really don't like him. Yep. But I had to Google earlier today why everybody else hates Jonathan Franzen because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just like about the shitty things. that he, Like I wanted to check if people were actually mad at his prose. Oh, I mean, some people are. Most people are the mad most people are at mad what he's trying to adopt Iraqis. Yeah. And then replace those Iraqis with penguins. Yes. So I will, at the end of this, be able to tell you whether or not I'm (laughs) mad at Jonathan Franzen for his prose. (laughs) All right. So we've got like a six-page segment here that Laura is going to deliver unto us like one of the ancient Greek orators. Oh, my God. There's dialogue. Oh, oh, there's dialogue. If you could do voices, that'd be great. I'm going to get real comfy over here for the reading. Okay. I've got the gong ready. All right. Can you give us a setup for this scene, Eric? Um, we don't need much of one. You've got this kind of middle-aged dad in the middle of the Midwest somewhere who has is about to incur an injury in his hand and then has to go deal with his stupid children. Awesome. Yeah. And okay. he's depressed. Ready. 
This is, if you have it, you can follow along, the 228th page of the paperback edition of The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. This is good. I'm liking this reading voice. I've never never read this at all. Usually I read it in like a really erudite male voice. So if you could like aim for that, that would make me feel more at home. No. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? (laughs) That gets you a gong. All right. We ready. The gentle blow, the almost stinglish brush or bump that he then delivered to the meaty palm part of his right thumb proved, on inspection, to have made a deep and heavily bleeding hole that in the best of all possible worlds, an emergency physician would have looked at. That was one sentence. (laughs) What's wrong with that sentence? It was so long. But Gary was nothing if not conscientious. Damn right he wasn't. He knew he was too drunk to drive himself. He's drunk too? Obviously he's drunk. To drive himself to Chestnut Hill Hospital and he couldn't ask Caroline, is that his wife? Yes. Caroline to drive him there without raising awkward questions regarding his decision to climb a ladder and operate a power tool while intoxicated, which would collaterally entail admitting how much vodka he'd drunk before dinner. We only had one <laughs> shot of vodka before this. I'm wishing it was more. Mm-hmm. And in general, paint the opposite of the picture of good mental health, which are all in capitals. <gasps> Is that where you get the capitals from? I don't think so. Did he really do that? Oh, my God. Good mental health are all in capitals. Right. Well, so one thing that Eric can... does is he puts things and makes <laughs> them proper that nouns. I feel that you're distracting from, from the issue. <sighs> good mental health that he intended to create by coming out to trim the hedge. Okay, she's going to get mad at him for doing chores. That's ridiculous. Please continue. So while a swarm of skin-biting and fabric-eating insects attracted by the porch lights flew into the house through the front door that Gary, as he hurried inside with his strangely cool blood pooling in the cup of both hands, had neglected to kick shut behind him, he closeted himself in the downstairs bathroom and released the blood into the sink, seeing pomegranate juice or chocolate syrup or dirty motor oil in its ferric swirls. I'm really worried that if his blood looks like motor oil, he really should go to a doctor. Most of these people should go see a doctor. He ran cold water on the gash. From outside the unlocked bathroom door, Jonah asked if he had hurt himself. Gary assembled with his left hand an absorptive pad of toilet. That's a hard word to say out loud. Yes, yes, it's a very adult book. Shut up. (laughs) Pad of toilet paper and pressed it to the wound and one-handedly applied plastic surgical tape that the blood and water immediately made unsticky. There was blood on the toilet seat, blood on the floor, blood on the door. Donald Trump would say that they were there was blood wherever. There, there was blood coming out of his wherever. You're Dad, right. the bugs are coming in, Jonah said. Yes, Jonah. Why don't you shut the oh, door? Oh, yes. Good dad. <laughs> Great dad voice. <laughs> Why don't you shut the door and then go up and take a bath? I'll come up soon and play checkers. How old is this guy? Well, he's or the no, dad. how old the is kid, this? Little the kid, kid. little kid. Oh, a little kid. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we play chess? What kid wants to play chess? His little kid. Yes. There's plenty to object to here, but the kid wanting to play chess is not one of them. You're insulting my childhood. I'm not surprised that you played <laughs> chess as a child. Please continue. You have to give me the queen, a bishop, a horse, and a rook, though. Yes. Go take a bath. Will you come up soon? Yes. Gary tore fresh tape from the fanged dispenser and laughed at himself in the mirror to be sure he could still do it. Blood was soaking through the toilet paper. Well, that's because toilet paper doesn't have that great of absorption. Come on now. Man. Trickling down. 
<laughs> around his wrist. I mean, he should really get his paper products straight. That's all I'm saying. And loosening the tape. He wrapped his hand in a guest towel, and with a second guest towel, well dampened, he wiped the bathroom clean of blood. He opened the door a crack and listened to Caroline's voice upstairs, to the dishwasher in the kitchen, to Jonah's bathwater running. A trail of blood receded up the central hall towards the front door, crouching and moving sideways in crab fashion. (laughs) (laughs) With his injured hand pressed to his belly, Gary swabbed up the blood with the guest towel. Further blood was splattered on the gray wooden floor of the front porch. Gary walked on the sides of his feet for quiet. I just have the best image of this dude like (laughs) crab walking like Zoidberg. It's great. He went to the kitchen for a bucket and a mop. And there in the kitchen was the liquor cabinet. Thank God. Thank, Thank God. Well, he opened it by holding the vodka bottle in his right armpit he was able to unscrew the cap with his left hand, and as he was raising the bottle, as he was tilting his head to make a late, small withdrawal from a rather tiny balance that remained, seriously, his gaze drifted over the top of the cabinet door, and he saw the camera. The camera was the size of a deck of cards. It was mounted on an... Oh my god, I don't know what that word is. What's the word? What's the word? Let's work through it together right here on Elta's the El Tazimuth? L L Tell me what that word is. I don't know. I can't see it. Who knows? It's a <laughs> just just skip it and come back to it later as a vocab word. We'll, we'll turns do it out like that a... agents don't know everything. Bracket above the black door. Its casing was of brushed aluminum. It had a purplish gleam in its eye. I oh, this kid's got like a surveillance camera in the kitchen, yeah. Why wouldn't it be red? Isn't the red know. the blinking the blinking light? I'm worried about that. I don't know. Gary returned the bottle to the cabinet moved to the sink and ran water in a bucket. The camera swept 30 degrees to follow him. He wanted to rip the camera off the ceiling, and failing that, he wanted to go upstairs and explain to Caleb the dubious morality of spying, and failing that, he at least wanted to know how long the camera had been in place, but since he had something to hide now, any action he took against the camera, any objection he made to its presence in the kitchen, was bound to strike Caleb as self-serving. Hey, Laura. Yeah. Remember when I got the prediction about the man Booker, right? Shut up, Eric. <laughs> I'm getting into this. Let, let me at least get through it. Go, 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 go. He dropped the bloody, dusty guest towel. Why is it dusty? Do you not clean your house? I'm actually one to talk. Pot, meat, kettle. He dropped the bloody, dusty guest towel in the bucket and approached the back door. The camera reached, reared up its... Uh, re- reared up in its bracket. That's an odd preposition. To keep him centered in its field. He stood directly below it and looked into its eye. He shook his head and mouthed the words, No, Caleb. Naturally, the camera made no response. Gary realized now that the room was probably miked for sound as well. He could speak to Caleb directly, but he was afraid that if he looked up into Caleb's proxy eye and heard his own voice and let it be heard in Caleb's room, the result would be an intolerably strong upsurge in the reality of what was happening. He therefore stood, shook his head again, and made a sweeping motion with his left hand. A firm director's cut. Cut is capitalized. (laughs) Then he took the bucket from the sink and swabbed the front porch. 
Because he was drunk, the problem of the camera and Caleb's witnessing of his injury and his furtive involvement in the liquor cabinet didn't stay in Gary's head as an ensemble of conscious thoughts and anxieties, but turned in in on itself and became a kind of physical presence inside him, a hard, tumorous mass descending through his stomach and coming to rest in his lower gut. The problem wasn't going anywhere, of course, but for the moment, it was impervious to thought. Hmm. Dad? Came Jonah's oh, voice. I love the voices. The voices are Thank really... Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These I, definitely sound like young children. Thanks. Dad? Came Jonah's voice through an upstairs window. I'm ready to play chess now. By the time Gary went inside, having left his hedge half-clipped in the ladder in an ivy bed, his blood had soaked through three layers of toweling and bloomed on the surface as a pinkish spot of plasma filled, filtered out of its corpuscles. He was afraid of meeting somebody in the hallway, Caleb or Caroline, certainly, but essentially, especially Aaron, because Aaron had asked him, stop nodding. You're nodding behind me and I can see it because Aaron had he Eric is so into this. You guys No, I'm very into your rendition of it. I'm very enjoying the idea that you have to read this is what I'm is. I'm taking donations for audiobooks now, but only for Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, this, is audiobooks. this is your audition. Do you think he'll hire please, me? Please continue. Um, because Aaron had asked him if he was feeling all right and Aaron had not been able to lie to him. And all these small demonstrations of Aaron's love were in a way the scariest part of the whole evening. Why is there a towel in your hand? Jonah asked as he removed half of Gary's forces from the chessboard. I cut myself, Jonah. I'm keeping some ice on the cut. You smell like alcohol. Jonah's (laughs) voice was lilting. Alcohol is a powerful disinfectant, Gary said. Jonah moved his pawn to K4. I'm talking about the alcohol you drank, though. What a bitch. What a punk kid. This boy is like going through reverse puberty as these pages happen. (laughs) And I'm not and I'm getting reverse drunk and I wish I wasn't. By 10 o'clock, Gary was in bed and thus arguably still in compliance with a with his original plan arguably arguably twice in one clause really arguably still on track to what well he didn't exactly know but if he got some sleep he might be able to see his way forward in order not to bleed on the sheets he put an injured hand towel and all inside a brenola bread bag he turned on the nightstand light and faced the wall his bagged hand cradled against his chest his sheet and the summer blanket pulled up over his shoulder He slept hard for a while and was awakened in the darkened room by the throbbing of his hand. The flesh on either side of the gash was twitching as if it had worms in it, pain fanning out along five carpi. Carpi? Carpi? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Carolyn breathed evenly, asleep. Gary got up to empty his bladder and take four Advils. When he returned to bed, his last pathetic plan fell apart because he could not get back to sleep. He had the sensation that blood was running out of the granola bag. He considered getting up. Is that brand granola, maybe? I'm not entirely certain. Who, who even knows at this point? He considered getting up and sneaking out to the garage and driving to the emergency room. He added up the hours this would take him and the amount of wakefulness he would have to burn off upon returning. Oh, God, we've got so much left, folks. You don't have to keep And he going. subtracted the total from the n- hours of the night remaining until we he had to get you, up. We can let you stop wherever you decide you'd like to. I lost. We're doing this fair and square. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> to get up and go to work. And he concluded that he was better off just sleeping until six. And then if need be stopping at the ER on his way to work. But this was all contingent on his ability to fall back asleep. And since he couldn't do this, he reconsidered and recalculated. But now there were fewer minutes remaining of the night that when he first considered getting up and sneaking out, the calculus was cruel in its regression. He got up again to piss. The problem of Caleb's surveillance lay indigestible in his gut. He was mad to wake up Carolyn and fuck her. Well, okay. His hurt hand pulsed. Things have escalated. Things have escalated. It felt elephantine. He had the hand the size and weight of an armchair, each finger a soft log of exquisite sensitivity. That's not the log he's thinking about, though, Eric. Let me tell you. Folks. Folks, we've got, a ner- <laughs> we've got a dirty joke. And Denise kept looking at him with hatred. And his mother kept yearning for her Christmas. And he slipped briefly into a room in which his father had been strapped into an electrical chair and fitted with a metal helmet. What? And Gary's own hand was the old-fashioned stirrup-like power switch, which he'd eventually already thrown because Alfred came leaping from the chair, fantastically galvanized, horribly smiling, a travesty of enthusiasm, dancing around with rigid jerking limbs and circling the room at double speed and then falling hard face down, wham like a ladder with its legs together, and lying prone there on the execution room floor with every muscle in his body galvanically twitching and boiling. Damn. Please note that this then leads us to an M dash and doesn't have an p- end punctuation mark and then goes to the next paragraph. Gray light was in the window when Gary got up to piss for the fourth or fifth time. The morning's humidity and warmth felt more like July than October. A haze or fog on Seminole Street confused or disembodied or refracted the cawing of crows as they worked their way up the hill over Navajo Road and Shawnee Street like local teenagers. Teenagers is hyphenated. Heading over to Wawa Food Market Wait, parking lot. Teenagers is hyphenated? It's hyphenated. Between teen and agers? Teen and agers hyphenated. Who knew? Club Wa, they called it, according to Aaron, to smoke their cigarettes. He lay down again and waited for sleep. Now, we've got um, some some dialogue here that starts in the middle. Day the... F- oh, no, sorry. That's not, a, that's not a little boy. Day the 5th of... Uh, damn it. It's the same voice. <laughs> This is your voice for everyone. I picture so. So real quick, it sounds like this is how you just hear all men talking. Yes, it's just dum, 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 dum. pretty much. That's okay. how. That's, that's how good. I listen. Yeah, I, I'm sure you really enjoy listening back to these podcasts. Day the fifth of October, amongst the top news stories, we're following this morning with his ex- execution now less than 24 hours away. Lawyers for Kelly said Caroline's clock radio as she swatted it silent. In the next hour, while he was listening to the rising of his sons and the sound of their breakfast and the blowing of the trumpet line by John Philip Sousa, courtesy of Aaron, a radical new plan took shape in Gary's brain. He lay fetally on his side, very still, facing the wall with a granola-baked hand against his chest. His radical new plan was to do absolutely nothing. Gary, are you awake? <sighs> Carolyn said from a medium distance, the doorway presumably. Gary? He did nothing. Didn't answer. I like that she's British. Gary? In the, in the <laughs> That's all I got, Eric. It's all I got. <laughs> he wondered if she might be less, if she might be curious about what he was doing, why he was doing nothing, but already her footsteps were receding up the hall and she was calling, Jonah, come on, you're going to be late. I tried to let you out of this, by the way. Where's Just dad? Keep that in Jonah mind said. When you get to this. <laughs> He's still in bed. Let's go. There was a patter of little feet, and now came the first real challenge to Gary's radical new plan. From somewhere closer than the doorway, Jonah smoke. Spoke, not smoke. 
Jonah, Jonah's a little kid. Jonah's not smoking. Dad, we're leaving now. Dad! And Gary had to do nothing. He had to pretend he couldn't hear, wouldn't hear, and had to inflict his general strike, his clinical depression, on the one creature he wished he could have spared. If Jonah came away, if came any closer, if, for example, he came and gave him a hug, Gary doubted he would be able to stay silent and unmoving. But Carolyn was calling him from downstairs and Jonah hurried out. Distantly, Gary heard the beeping of his anniversary date being entered into the arm, entered to arm the perimeter. Oh, okay, it's not as, okay, gotcha. Then the toast-smelling <laughs> house was silent and he, toast, mm, and then he shaped his face into, into the expression of bottomless suffering and self-pity that Carolyn wore when her back was hurting because his emotional pain is equal to her physical pain, mm-hmm. folks. <laughs> he understood as he... <laughs> It's going to get a lot better. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. He understood, as he never had before, how much comfort this expression yielded. He thought about getting up, but he didn't need anything. He didn't know when Carolyn was coming back. If she was working at the CDF today, she might not return until three. It didn't matter. He would be here. As it happened, Carolyn came back in half an hour. The sounds of her departure were reversed. He heard the approaching stopper, the disarming code, the footsteps on the stairs. He sensed his wife in the doorway, silent, watching him. Gary, she said in a lower, more tender voice. Oh, God, we've only got a page and a half left. He did nothing. He lay. She came over to him and knelt by the bed. What is it? Are you sick? He didn't answer. What's this bag for? My God, what did you do? He said nothing. Gary, say something. Are you depressed? Yes. (laughs) She sighed then. Weeks of accumulated. I want like like hand puppets for this. I feel like you're giving me hand puppet voices. I will do that once we get a camera. Um, If you give to Patreon, we'll get a camera and I can do hand puppets. We'll get Jonathan France and hand puppets and we can act out the scenes. It'll be great. She sighed then. Weeks of accumulated tension were draining from the room. I surrender, Gary said. What do you mean? You don't have to go to St. Jude, he said. Nobody who doesn't want to go has to go. It cost him a lot to say this, but there was a reward. He felt Carolyn's warmth approaching, its radiance, but before she she touched him, uh, the sun rising, the first brush of her hair on his neck as she leaned over him, the approach of her breath, the gentle touching down of her lips on his cheek, she said, thank you. I might have to go for Christmas Eve, but I'll come back for Christmas. Thank you. I'm extremely depressed. Thank you. I surrender, Gary said. And, oh, God. The irony, of course, was that as soon as he'd surrendered, possibly as soon as he confessed to his depression, almost certainly by the time he showed her his hand and she put a proper bandage on it, and absolutely no later than the moment at which, with a locomotive as long and hard and as heavy as an O-gauge model railroad engine, he tunneled up into wet and gently corrugated recesses. Are you kidding me? That's a sex scene? That's a sex scene. Please continue. <sighs> that even she has gently corrugated recesses. You should have won the bet. Ugh. <laughs> that even after 20 years of traveling through them, he st- still felt unexplored. His approach was spoon style from behind. This is in parentheses, by the way. Mm-hmm. Parentheses. His approach was spoon style from behind so that Carolyn could keep her lower back arched and outward and he could harmlessly drape his bandaged hand across her flank. The semicolon, the screwing wounded, the two of them were, end parentheses. He not only felt 
or sorry, he not only no longer felt depressed, he felt euphoric. The thought came to him inappropriately, inappropriately, perhaps, considering the tender conjugal act. Technically, that position is called the lazy Sunday. Wow. Things Here we you, go. Educational. Things, this, things that's you the most informative being, thing people have learned yes. on this show today. Uh, <laughs> but also, <laughs> but he was who he was. He was Gary Lambert. He had inappropriate thoughts and he was sick of apologizing. Exclamation point. M dash lowercase T. That he could now safely ask Carolyn to buy him 4,500 shares of Axon and she would gladly do it. Does she have the money? Maybe. Um, I don't remember. She rose and dipped like a top and on a tiny point of contact, her entire sexual being almost weightless on the moistened tip of his middle finger. What does that even mean? <laughs> he spent himself gloriously, spent and spent and spent. They were still lying naked in, at the hokey pokey pl- playing the ho Sorry. They were still lying naked at the hooky playing hour of 930 on a Tuesday when the phone on Caroline's nightstand rang. Gary, answering, was shocked to hear his mother's voice. He was shocked by the reality of her existence. I'm calling from the ship. That's great. Enid said. Great mom voice. Thank you. For one guilty instant before it registered with him that the phoning from a ship was expensive and that his mother's news could therefore not be good, Gary believed she was calling because she knew that he'd betrayed her. End chapter. We made it. Oh, God. We made it. So turns out I hate Jonathan Franzen because of his prose, too. <laughs> it's good that we got there, though, right? Like, there. Yeah. See? Good. Excellent. What's the next thing we can bet on? Eric? <laughs> I don't know, but it's coming because it's still goddamn award season. Yeah, it is. Eric, give the people their query tip. Oh, man. It's been a, it's been a long show, but we've got the end here. Um, my query tip is, is really simple. Uh, this week, and I think you'll empathize. It's it's basically just don't lie in your query. It's about me, about you, about anything. Like I get so many queries in my inbox that basically say things like, well, you know, I'm thrilled to be submitting to someone to your list and you've got all these great publications and all this stuff. And it's like, well, well, no, I don't. I'm pretty young at this. You're I a really, brand new agent. I'm brand new. Like, you've got nothing to... Sp- Speak of. <laughs> You're mad. You're I'm mad so right mad right now. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, the point is that I'm just starting. So when you send me an email that says, that's like some form letter, just like with some bland compliment that doesn't have anything to do with me, it mostly just seems like you're not talking to me. And it mostly just seems you're kind of blowing smoke up everybody's ass. And then on the flip side of that is, don't lie about you don't lie and don't embellish your own writing experience in your in your bio and stuff i see that a lot where people will try to make whatever small publications they have sound better they'll try to do whatever it is and it's it doesn't it really it doesn't matter in the end like just don't like it's better to just say nothing than to say than to overpromise because we're going to go look up some of this stuff and it's like if it's not as good as we thought that's much worse than not having anything. And at the end of the day, it's all about the book and not whatever you've done in the past, right? Like, what do you think? I agree. I agree. You know, like, lazy personalization in queries is worse than no personalization. Yeah, no, it's just like you're not getting anywhere by complimenting the person you're sending a query to unless you have something really specific and researched like to say you to love them. print run 
<laughs> that would work. That that would probably. I've work. actually gotten a few of those, and it's been lovely. <laughs> no, no, no. Get the. You want ones that say, "I went on iTunes and reviewed you guys, and now I'm sending." You I a gave query. you five stars. <laughs> so you'll notice, folks, that yeah. uh, this tip this week was a query tip, not like a writing tip or a publishing tip. And we wanted to give you a query tip just to kind of whet your appetites a little bit for the things that we're going to be critiquing and talking about on our mm-hmm. query show on Thursday. Yep. So please. Tune in on Thursday for our query show. Um, and after that, on Tuesday next week for our regularly scheduled programming. Maybe I'll stop being mad at Eric by then. Who knows? Very doubtful. Who knows? Once again, if you have things to send us, email us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, we'll see you on Thursday. Bye. Bye.